Well, here in John chapter 1, when we were last together, we were talking about the first disciples that were called by Jesus. And it is interesting as we get back into this passage to notice the kind of people that Jesus attracted initially, the people that he used to make up the ranks of his church. Generally, it was from the lower ranks of life. I read this week of a famous cathedral window that was constructed by an apprentice from materials that his master had thrown away. The window turned out to be such an extraordinary, beautiful piece of art that his master got so jealous, he got rid of the apprentice because the apprentice had made such a great thing greater than anything he could make out of the scraps that he had discarded and disdained and held in contempt. That is so much like the picture we have here in John chapter 1. Here is Jesus Christ. He begins to call his disciples and it is from the levels of society that were held in contempt by all of the great men of his day. Who would have thought a fisherman like Peter would be anybody important? Or who would have in that day in high places thought that a tax collector, a despised man like Matthew would be anyone of any importance or a man who sat under a fig tree like Nathaniel would have any major contribution to make to the entire human race. And yet when Jesus called together his initial team, he goes to the lower ranks of life. And he truly chose the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. In Mark 12:37, it says the common people heard him gladly. In Luke 15:1, I love this, it says the tax collectors and the sinners drew near to hear him. There was something about Jesus that made these people unintimidated, made them feel comfortable to draw near him, made them sense within their hearts that he had what they so desperately needed. And so he drew from the ranks of these kind of people. In studying for this message, I was reminded of David's army. Did you ever read about David's army in the Old Testament? In 1 Samuel 22, when David became an outcast because Saul had gone mad, in 1 Samuel 22, verse 2, it says, And everyone who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was discontented gathered to David, and he became a captain over them. So his army was made up of outcasts. And yet that was the way God chose to raise up an army for the mightiest man to lead Israel throughout the history of that nation. And you look at Jesus recruiting his army, and what you see is similar thing. You see the lapsed and the lost being brought together. The people from lives of deep sin, people from common ordinary jobs and common ordinary levels, fishermen, artisans, publicans, tax collectors, ex-prostitutes. These are the people that he gathered together to his team. It is amazing to see that. Here is Jesus Christ. He has three years to launch his program, if we could put it in those terms. And these are the kind of people that he chose. It speaks so much of the power of God to use even the most common individuals for the most extraordinary spiritual tasks. So he generally drew men from the lower ranks of life. Another thought I want to give you as we get into it here is that he attracted men in all different ways. I think this is very important to be reminded of. We have been left on this earth to evangelize the earth. You realize that. If we were just to be left here and be holy, God could take us to heaven and make us holy immediately. 
He wouldn't have to take a lifetime to sanctify us. You see, when you come to Christ, the reason you're left here instead of being raptured immediately is because God wants to then use you as someone who has tasted of the life of God in your soul to go out and bring others to Him. So in the end, when we study, for example, in Titus, the conduct and the character of people in the church and how we are to be and how we're to be holy and how we're to know God and live near to God, it's because God wants to use us as His church to be the light of the world, to reach those who are yet unreached. That is in the end the whole issue. That is why we live and breathe still on this planet. So I think it's very important to be reminded of how the Lord draws people unto Himself so that we can then take inventory of our own lives and see if we are exhausting those channels to bring people to Him. And what you see, even in looking at this passage, is basically there's four main avenues that the Lord uses to draw people unto Himself. One is preaching. Preaching, you see that if you look at John 1.36. It says, And looking at Jesus as He walked, John the Baptist is preaching. He said, Behold the Lamb of God. And then in verse 37, the two disciples heard Him speak and they followed Jesus. So John and Andrew there came to Christ through hearing preaching. And I want to encourage you as we look at these ways that Jesus drew people to Himself just briefly here, I want to encourage you to let God use you in this way. Let God use you to invite people to church to hear the preaching of the Word. Let God give you the boldness that's necessary. Let God give you the love and the care and the concern to say to somebody, Hey, would you like to come to church with me Thursday night? In the late 1800s and the early 1900s, Alexander White pastored a large church in Edinburgh, Scotland. During that time, there was a salesman by the name of Rigby who would travel to Edinburgh regularly just to hear him preach. He would often invite other businessmen to accompany him to the services. One Sunday morning, he asked a fellow traveler to go to church with him. Reluctantly, the man said yes. When he heard White's message, he was so impressed that he returned with Rigby to the evening meeting. As the preacher spoke, the man gave his life to Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. The next morning, as Rigby walked by the home of Pastor White, he felt impressed to stop and tell him how his message had affected the other man's life. When White learned that his caller's name was Rigby, he got very excited, and he said, You're the man I've wanted to meet for years. Rigby said, Well, what do you mean? White went into his house, into his study, and he came back out with a bundle of letters. And he began to read Rigby some of the excerpts from these letters, all telling about changed lives. And then he said to Rigby, all these letters came from people that you brought to this church to hear the gospel preached. And I've wanted to meet you for so many years. Rigby was a salesman who brought people to hear the preaching of the Word of God. I want to encourage you to do that. That's what you see here with John the Baptist and Andrew and John. Another way Jesus draws people himself is directly... We will see that next time in the case of Philip. Jesus went and found Philip. It's a very interesting thing. A third way that Jesus draws people to himself is through friendships that you have. Acquaintances, fellow employees, this kind of thing. And I want to encourage you on this level to ask yourself if you have, as a Christian, called to be the light of the world, if you have exhausted your avenues of friendships to win people to Christ, if you have exhausted the opportunities with fellow co-workers to tell them about Christ, to witness to them, even if it's only to tell them that you came to know Christ, sometimes we are so hung up on how we're to do it that we sense the Lord is opening a door and we immediately panic 
And we start reviewing our theology. Let's see, virgin birth and Holy Spirit and, and he, Joseph and he had a dream. And, you know, we're going through this whole thing. Justification by faith. It uh, means just as if you ne never sinned. That's it, right. Well, by the time we go through this, <laughs> to get ready to witness, the door has closed, the person's walked off, and we're standing there going, oh, I know I should have said something to him. And for two weeks, you're walking around, oh, God, forgive me. <laughs> oh, Lord. You've been there, right? Listen, if it's just to say, I've come to know Christ, it's amazing. And to do it in a natural way as the Lord opens the door. If you've come to know Christ, you can say that. You would be amazed how much God can do with just that. If they're open at all, they'll say, well, what does that mean? And then you can just simply begin to tell them. And you would be amazed how God can use you just to tell them that you've come to know Christ. We see that happening in this passage. People coming to know Christ and just going to tell others, I've come to know Him. You need to come and meet Him. As simple as that. Nothing profound. And then Jesus does the rest. One of the times that people are most open to hearing the gospel is during a crisis in their life. When suddenly things are not going the way they had hoped they would go in life. And that's a great time to share with a co-worker or a friend or a neighbor or whatever the gospel. To sit down and talk to them, discover their pain level, and then bring Christ as the solution. If they're going through a divorce, sit down and tell them of the love of Jesus. If they're losing someone to a terminal illness, tell them of the one who said he would not leave you comfortless. In times of crisis, people are more open than normal. Sometimes even God has specifically designed that crisis to so plow the heart of that individual by the pain and the agony and the work of the Holy Spirit that they are literally waiting for you according to God's sovereign plan. Not someone else, but you to come and say to them, do you know of His love? And it's amazing what God can do if we'll just be bold enough and loving enough to do that in the midst of a crisis. I read about a Scotsman by the name of John Haldane who joined the Navy at an early age and he rose to the ranks and eventually was given command of a warship called the Melville Castle. In a fierce encounter with an enemy vessel, he ordered a number of fresh recruits to take the place of the many experienced sailors who lay dead or wounded on the deck. Anguished by the sight of the mangled bodies of his comrades and angered by the cowardly attitude of their replacements, Captain Haldane began to shout and swear violently, cursing his inept crew, and he said that he wished them all in hell. When the battle ended, one of the survivors, who was a Christian, came over to him and stepped up respectfully and said, Captain, if God had answered your request a little while ago, where would we all be now? And then he began to accompany that rebuke with a kind scriptural testimony that sent arrows of conviction into the heart of the surprised officer, and he was eventually converted. Feeling the call to the ministry, he left his Navy career and he became a preacher. For the next 54 years, he led many people to the Savior. One of those people was his brother, Robert Haldane. Robert Haldane's commentary on the book of Romans is one of my favorite commentaries on the book of Romans. I was so excited today to read how the man came to Christ that wrote that commentary and how that he came by way of his brother who came by way of a co-worker who was willing in the midst of a crisis to come and respectfully share Christ with him. 
It is amazing how God can use us if we'll just be willing and if we will care and if we will realize we are to be the light of the world. We've been left here to share Christ. People come to Christ through preaching. They come directly by the touch of God's love. They come through friendships with co-workers and people like that that you know in your life. But they come when we share. And another way is through family. Through family. And that is how Peter comes to Christ here in this passage in front of us. Andrew comes to share with him. And as we get into this, I want you to ask yourself this question. Have I shared Christ with all of my family members? Do my family members, do they all know that I'm a Christian? One of the greatest tragedies that I hear of as a pastor is when people share how someone died in their family and they never told them about Christ. And especially if they confess that they were too afraid to share Christ from the, with them even in their dying hours. That to me is such a tragedy. Listen, number one, they're a captive audience. They're not going anywhere from that bed if they're dying. Number two, if they get mad at you, they're not going to be around that long to yell at you. <laughs> number three, if they come to know Christ, you will be the launching pad to launch them into eternal bliss and glory out of their agony. If that isn't enough to motivate you beyond your own fear of your witness, I don't know what would be. A few years back, I had an aunt who was uh, a Mormon, grew up Mormon, lived Mormon, lived in Utah. And as so many of my relatives are, and she contracted cancer. She was a nurse. So from the very beginning, she knew what she was in for. And she knew she was going to die an agonizing death, which she did. Just before that time, we had gone through Psalm 23 in our church, and one of the burdens I had in preaching through Psalm 23 was to put together a tool to give to dying people. Because you have the passage there with, the Lord will be with me in the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil, and you have the whole thing on dwelling in the house of the Lord forever. So a burden I had all the way through was, I want a tool when I'm done here to give to dying people that don't know Christ. A comforting witness of how they could come to know Christ in the hope of heaven. So she being a Mormon, me being nervous of how to approach her and witness to her, I sent her the tapes on Psalm 23. The incredible thing is, as the time went by, her cancer got worse and worse and she finally died. When my mother went to her house to pack up her belongings, she found the Psalm 23 tapes at her bedside. She had been listening to them for months and had given her heart to Christ in the process. She was my family member. I could have said, well, she's a Mormon. She's not going to want to hear it. And, you know, she knows my background. And she's just going to think that Christ is just for wretched people like me. But I really felt that I had to share with her. And I am so glad I did. She will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And I will see my aunt again. Share with your family members. Share Christ with them. If you love them at all, you must share with them and share in love and do it humbly. Well, that's what happened here. As we come back to John chapter 1 and verse 40, we read here that one of the two who heard John speak, John the Baptist, and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. And he first found his own brother, Simon, and he said to him, We have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ. Now, last time we talked about Andrew, this time we talk about Peter. He brought him to Jesus. Now, when Jesus looked at him, he said, You are Simon, the son of Jonah. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated a stone. 
This to me is a fascinating passage. Absolutely fascinating. And there's three things I want to draw out here to your attention that our Lord manifests as He interacts with Peter who comes to know Him for the first time. First of all, I am struck as I look at this by the divine insight of Jesus. It comes to us in a very simple way, but it is here nonetheless. If you look at verse 42, it says, And He brought him to Jesus, then this, Now when Jesus looked at him, He said... And then he starts to tell him about himself. You are the son of Jonah. You will be. But this thing about this look, it is a look of divine insight. Why does John write, now when Jesus looked at him, why doesn't he just skip over to the fact that he was talking? Why does he say, as he looked at him? You realize John is writing this when he was very old. All of this had occurred many, many, many years earlier. That must have been some kind of look that Jesus gave to Peter for John to remember it so freshly these many years later as he's writing. It must have been an intense, penetrating gaze for it to live on in John's memory like that, looking at him. It was a look of divine insight. It was a look that says, I'm reading your soul. It was a look that said, I know everything about you. In John chapter 2, we have a validation of this. If you turn to John chapter 2 to verse 24 and 25, it says, But Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men, and he had no need that anyone should testify of man. Here's why. For he knew what was in man. He knew everything about everybody. He was God. So here Andrew brings Peter to Jesus, and Jesus just stands there and looks at him. Can you imagine? Just looks at him. Just imagine those eyes. Those eyes of the Son of God looking right into you and through you. What he did to Peter is so impressive. You are Simon, the son of Jonah, as if to say, and all that that encompasses, I know about you. But I want you to know you shall be something else. It's a great thing. He read Simon with a divine look. He knows what is in men. When John came following him with Andrew and Jesus is walking along, he sensed they were following and he turned and he looked. Remember? We studied that a while back. And he was sensing in John's heart the yearning for love that John had. And he met that yearning. It is John who became so close to him that he was able to hear the heart beat inside of the breast of the God-man at the Last Supper. He saw Peter as he stared and looked at him, and he saw this burly fisherman, probably giant calluses on his hand, the suntan weathered skin from so much sun, the big burly form, the impetuous self-assertion that Peter had so outwardly manifest to everybody that got near him. But as Jesus looked at Peter, what he saw inside was a somewhat timid and weak man, a man who was a weird blend of strengths and weaknesses. A man who was so strong outwardly that he was the natural born leader and always was the head of the crowd and people sort of polarized around him, but a man who at the same time was so weak that he would deny Christ to a girl at a fireside. A weird blend of weaknesses and strength. He saw that inside of him. He knew where to find Philip. 
He went and he found Philip, we'll see next time, and he knew what qualities were worth finding inside of Philip that God had put there. And he knew the magnetic phrase, the, just the right phrase to give to Philip to bind him to an everlasting relationship with him, which was simply, follow me. See, he knows you. He knows every man. He saw the guileless simplicity in Nathaniel. And as Nathaniel comes toward him, he validates Nathaniel's single-mindedness, his undivided heart, and he responds to that. He knew the thoughts that were passing through Nathaniel's heart about God underneath the fig tree just before he met up with him. You see, he knows what is in man. He can look at every man with a divine look. And so he read Peter with a divine look. Jesus looked at him in such a way that years later, decades later, John remembers it so vividly. And I want to say this now. He reads you with a divine look. He read Peter with a divine look, and he reads you with a divine look. Jesus is looking at you right now as you sit in this message. Think of that. He's looking right at you. Now, for some of you, that might be a thought that makes you a little paranoid. Jesus is looking right at you. Men have been driven mad when they've been locked up in prison and had some guard staring at them. I read about Lafayette. Remember Lafayette in your history who was a Ameri- uh, French statesman and military man who was on the side of the colonists in the American Revolution? Do you remember that? Lafayette, the Frenchman, the guy that you bump into in history and say, why is this Frenchman helping out these colonists? Well, Lafayette wrote that he was once shut up in a little room in a gloomy prison for a long time. And he wrote that in the door of his little cell there was a very small hole cut. And he said that at that hole a soldier was placed day and night. So they kept putting fresh soldiers placed day and night to watch him. And he said all he could see through the hole was the soldier's eye and there was always an eye there around the clock. He said it nearly drove him mad. It was dreadful. It was always there day and night. There was no escaping that eye, no hiding. Well, there is no hiding from the view of Jesus Christ. The Bible says that the eyes of the Lord are in every place. Proverbs 15.3 The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. Jesus is looking at you right now. For some people, that makes them paranoid. But I assert to you that a Christian should be encouraged by that thought. That Jesus is looking at you right now. He reads you. He reads you like men read a book. In Psalm 139, verse 2, the psalmist says, You know my sitting down and my rising up, and you understand my thought afar off. It should be an encouraging thing to you to know that Jesus reads you with a divine look. I mean, just imagine, I don't know how you imagine Jesus, but imagine Him right now. Just take a minute. Imagine Him right now leaning over and looking at you right now. And as He's looking at you, He's looking right down into your heart. He sees everything about you. He sees the thoughts that are there. He sees the attitude that is there. He sees every single detail about you. I don't know how that strikes you, but if you're a Christian, it should cause you to rejoice, to realize that Jesus is searching you moment by moment, that He knows everything about you, and yet to understand who He is. You see, if you will understand that the one who searches you with a divine look is the one who died for you, then you will be comforted by that divine look. Then you will realize that that kind of understanding that He searches your heart is something to carry with you, 
something to comfort you in your trials. Not something to make you paranoid, but something to comfort you in your worst times of struggle with sin. To realize that He knew you when He died for you. He knew all about you. The day that you came and prayed a prayer and said, Jesus, forgive me, I want to follow you. He knew all about you. He knew about your future. He knew about this week. He knew about your struggles this week. When you said, Lord, lead me, guide me, take me out of my wretched life, give me a new life, and he began the sanctifying process, he knew everything about you. He knew all your sins, and he also knew the sins you would commit in the future in the middle of that sanctifying process. And yet here is the amazing thing. Looking at you with a divine look, looking at you, shall we say, with a look of omniscience, he also looks at you with a look of love that is infinite. So here is all of this, think of it, this omniscience that sweeps through your heart like the world's most powerful x-ray and just overturns every rock, sees all the creepy crawly things running in every direction as the light hits. He searches you with this omniscience that finds every detail and yet along with the omniscience comes this intense divine love that is committed to you and that brings with it the omnipotence of God to your soul, not to condemn you, but to free you, to change you, to comfort you, to fill you, to help you. This is what the divine look of Jesus brings to you. So we read, he looked at Peter. What a look. And he looks at you. I do pray that you would be encouraged by that. I remember as a child that I would be playing off at a distance, but within eyesight of my father. And I remember my father worked out and he was very big and strong, curling 80 pounds in each arm, I remember. And then he would put his arm in the doorway and say, oh, if you pull ups on that kid. And I'd hang on his arm, it was huge. I remember playing at a distance from my father, but within eyesight and thinking, he always rolled his sleeves up so you could tell he worked out, you know, the way guys do, I keep mine down. <laughs> I remember feeling so secure under the watchful eye of my father that as long as I know that he's watching me, I don't fear that any harm will come to me. Listen, brethren, don't be paranoid of God. Don't be thinking the Lord is up there wanting to take his divine knowledge and his omniscient gaze and ruin your life with it. But rather, realize he looks into your life he discovers the weakness to bring his love and to bring his power to it. And know that he is with you. And let it change your life. He looked at Peter with his divine insight. That's the first thing. Then we come back again. Let's take another pass at verse 42, John chapter 1. And we see his divine mastery or his lordship. Just want to touch on this. He brought him to Jesus. Now when Jesus looked at him, he said, You are Simon, the son of Jonah. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated a stone. He reveals his divine mastery in changing his name. In other words, when was the last time you met someone who said, Nice to meet you. But as of right now, your name will be changed. I mean, that doesn't happen, does it? He's effectively saying, You're coming to me. I'm taking charge. I'm going to take your life. I want it all. I want your whole life. I want all your service, not just part of it. And to show you that I am becoming your Lord at this moment, I'm going to change your name. 
So in the name change was an exhibition of his mastery over Peter's life at that point. You look in the Old Testament, you see Jehovah change the name of Abram to Abraham. You see him change the name of Jacob to Israel. This is something that God has done in manifesting his lordship. It is a marvelous thing to contemplate that we belong all together to Jesus because he gave himself all together for us. This kind of lordship is a wonderful thing. This is not a grievous thing. You see, he who can come to me and say, I did not spare my life for you, I died for you. He alone has the right to say, yield yourself wholly to me and I will gladly yield myself to him. Paul said that in 2 Corinthians 5.15. He said, And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. And so Peter comes to him and says, Hi. Gives him a long look and he says, We're going to change your name. I'm going to be your Lord. I want you to know that right now. So his divine insight and his divine mastery manifested in this encounter. And then let me give you a third thought, his divine promise. I cannot tell you how much this thrills my heart and encourages me. I've been meditating on it for days. In John 142, let's take another pass, shall we? John 142. He brought him to Jesus. Now when Jesus looked at him, he said, You are Simon, the son of Jonah, but you shall be called Cephas, which is translated, John translates for us, a stone. Here is the divine promise that Jesus gives to Peter. It is the promise, do you realize it, of a new character? It is the promise then of a new function in life. A new character. You are Simon the son of Jonah, and here is a great promise. You are, but you shall be. You are, but you shall be. He promised him this great thing. You're going to become a rock. You are going to be a solid rock individual in my plan, in my kingdom, in my army. And yet if you look at it, he promised a change that was so far, so far from Peter's current state. We know Peter because we continue to get to know him in the Gospels. We know him. He was rash. He was impulsive. He was presumptuous. He was headstrong. He rebukes Jesus when Jesus is talking about going to the cross as the audacity to pull him aside and start bossing him around. Oh no, no, that kind of talk on the team. Now if I'm the head disciple around here, there's some things I'm not going to allow. And one of them is you're not dying. I mean, the presumption of it all. The Bible says he took him. Come on, you, over here. <laughs> the presumption of it all. This man, he was self-confident. He was vain in many ways. He is so far from this thing of, you are Simon, the son of Jonah, but you shall be a rock. He's so far from there. The other thing I see here is that the promise change was going to take some time. It's a great promise. It's a sure promise. It has all the commitment of the Son of God behind it, but it was going to take some time. See, Peter was going to have to have that self-confidence knocked out of him. He was going to have to learn humility and dependence on God and the Holy Spirit through his failures. He was going to have to let go of his presumption and come to a life of patient surrender to a sovereign God. He was going to have to allow the years to sober him and temper him through all of the hardships that would come his way and all of the responsibility that God would give him. Oh yes, it was going to take years to become this rock that Christ promised he would become. 
And all of this lay concealed in his future at that moment as Jesus looks at him and then talks to him. He stood on the threshold of a great life. He stood on the, the threshold of so much change. But as Jesus said, I'm going to change your name, Jesus was preaching to Peter a mini-sermon. And he was preaching this truth, that anyone who will come to me, anyone, I will take them and I will change them and I will make them something new. That was the message he was giving Peter when he said, I'm changing your name. It is a great truth. And it was going to take some time. But let me give you this thought. The promised change was going to make Peter who he was supposed to be in life. I love that thought. It was going to make Peter who he was supposed to be in life. You are Simon, the son of Jonah. You will be called Cephas, which is translated as stone. Now we follow it through and you'll notice he does not make Peter into John. And he does not make a John into a Paul. All of these men are distinct. What he does is he takes Peter and he delivers Peter from his own weaknesses. He takes Peter and he sharpens him and he tempers him. He takes the strengths that are God-given through the Holy Spirit and the natural talents that are God-given through birth. And he draws those out and he molds them and he shapes them. There is is a very unique fit vessel for the master's use. And he is not Paul and he is not John and he's not Luke. He's not anybody. He's Peter. So that the promised change was going to make him who he was supposed to be, not somebody else. Do you realize God is not in the cloning business? Science in these days is fascinated with cloning, making multiple identical copies through fancy DNA work and all of that. But if you look into creation, there are no two snowflakes that are alike. Out of all the snowflakes that have ever fallen, no two are alike. There are no two fingerprints alike. Nowadays, they're contemplating using the iris of your eye to put on a little card as a security measure so that you just throw your card, scan your card through the scanner to get in the door and it scans a picture of your eye because your iris is so unique. No two iris alike in an eye and there are no two Christians alike. This promise changed to Peter was to make him become who he was supposed to be, who God wanted him to be. God has designed to reveal himself to men. Think of this. And yet he's an infinite God. He's not the kind of individual you can get to know everything about him that you'd want to know in five seconds and then be bored after that. You know, people you talk to like that. You talk to him for a couple of minutes and he's, you're yawning already. God isn't like that. He's infinite. He's infinitely thrilling, infinitely wise, infinitely powerful, and he wants to reveal those attributes to man. But he cannot do it all through one individual. So what he has done is he has made us all unique. What a plan! Made us all unique. And then we come to him and he gives us a divine look, searches our character, reads us, explains us to ourselves so we can understand ourselves and in understanding ourselves, understand our need for him and come to depend on him. And then he draws us out and works in us to make us totally unique as fit vessels for his use. And obviously you look at Peter and he was totally unique, not someone else. But Peter, a changed man, led to a higher and nobler level of life to breathe the rarefied air of the heavenlies, you could say. And that is what God wants to do with you. Because you see, this promise of change is available for any person who will come to Jesus Christ. There is no person's character who is so deeply rooted and set in sin that it can't be changed. There is no person whose natural disposition is so faulty that Jesus can't come in alongside of it with his power and cultivate new virtues to counteract and counterbalance that. There's nobody. You see, our Lord Jesus specializes 
in a great thing. It's called bringing strength out of weakness. Paul the Apostle knew it. The writer of the Hebrews knew it. The Old Testament saints knew it. The writer to the Hebrews says in Hebrews 11.34, they quenched the violence of fire, they escaped the edge of the sword, and out of weakness they were made strong. Paul the Apostle found it out when he was having this problem in the flesh. The messenger of Satan to buffet him. He prayed three times for it to depart. The Lord said, no, it stays. And then he went on to discover this, that God was trying to teach him something. One of the most powerful lessons of his life. That in his weakness, God desired to manifest his strength. And in that way, God gets all the glory. Now, there are no hopeless cases under the care of Jesus. And you see, when someone comes to Jesus and they check in for his care... He has the power. He has the love and he has the commitment. In John 6:37, he said, All that the Father gives me will come to me and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. Anybody, everybody who will come. The worst, the most sinful, the blackest. Those who have lingered long and indulged heavily in the worst of sins, they can come. Turn in your Bible, would you, to Isaiah 55. Isaiah 55. We'll wrap up. Wonderful invitation from God. Isaiah 55, verse 1, down through 3. And here the Lord says, Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and you who have no money, no means, no ability, come and buy and eat. Yes, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and let your soul delight itself in abundance. Incline your ear and come to me here and your soul shall live. And I will make an everlasting covenant with you the sure mercies of David, which are the promises of God's grace in Jesus Christ. If you will come to him and hold fast to him, he will look deeply into your character. He will read your soul. And then if you will cleave to him, you will notice spiritually a glad smile spread across his face. A smile of commitment and welcome and assurance and confidence that he can take your life and he can give you new character and new dignity where sin has stripped it from your life. And he can give you an entirely new existence. Peter came to Jesus and he said, You are Simon, but you will be a stone. You're going to become a rock-solid individual. Of course, at that time, all the details were hidden. Thank God. Aren't you glad that when you first come to Christ and he has this great promise for you that he doesn't sit you down and say, Now listen, it's going to take time. And let me just tell you all the hardships you will go through to attain this new life and this new character. Oh, you couldn't bear it. But God in His wonderful grace and His sovereign timing and His providence, little by little, as you grow and you strengthen and you're able to take it, He lets you in on a few things and you go through a few things which enable you to go through some bigger things. And after the years roll by, you start going through monumental earthquake things in your life and seeing the power of God bring you through and in time your character is shaped and changed and you become a solid individual in Christ. And along the way, you learn with the Apostle Paul that you can be confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. And in talking about these things, we get something of an understanding of what Jesus meant when he said in Revelation 2.17, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. And then this 
and I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except the one who receives it. I don't know all that that means, but I, I think somewhat of it is this, what we've been talking about, and the fact that when he brings this promise of a new character to you, only you know the depths of that change. Oh, others can see some of it. But you know things about yourself no one will ever know. And when you see those deep inward changes taking place by the hand of God Himself, you have somewhat of an understanding of that new name that no one else can receive. I will give you a new name, He says. It's a new life, is what it is. And it's something unique to you. I love the fact that as we see Peter grow and change, that by the time we get to the book of Acts out of the Gospels, the man is different. And he is the rock. He is the pillar of the New Testament early church. He is the dominant influence in the first half of the book of Acts. He is it. And it's because of the changes Jesus made in him over the years. Well, he will change you if you will come to him. I love what William Barclay said here. He said, the great thing about this story is that it tells us how Jesus looks at men. He does not only see what a man is. He sees what a man can become. He does not only look at the actualities in a man, but he looks at the possibilities in a man. The possibilities that are made real because of his omnipotent power extended to you because of his divine love for you. Give your life to him. Let him look deeply into you. Let him bring his love to you and his fullness. Only you can make that commitment. Give your life to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time in your word. Thank you for the divine look. Thank you, Lord, that you know everything about us and Yet, with that omniscient knowledge, you do not recoil from us because your infinite love causes you to press in with that knowledge to bring your strength and your comfort in the changes that only you can make. And so, Lord, we invite you to change us. We invite you to fulfill your promise to us of a new character that will bring us to a new function in life. And, Lord, we look to you for the strength to take us through all the changes. May we understand your goodness and your love and embrace the changes instead of fight against them. And know that ever and always as our sovereign God, you are and will be using everything and seeking everything for our highest possible good. We thank you, Lord, for your love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.